You might not know this, but You Are Not So Smart does not have a staff. No employees, no editors, no producers. But that could change one day if you head over to patreon.com and add your support. Just $1 will get you episodes ad-free now and forever. To learn more, head to patreon.com slash you are not so smart. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 108. A few days ago, the President of the United States informally announced that there is an ongoing opioid epidemic in America, a public health emergency, a crisis, and the extent of the problem is immense. The head of the Federal Opioid Commission, Chris Christie, said recently that 142 Americans die every day from an opioid overdose. He likened it to the equivalent of the loss of life on 9-11, but every three weeks. And that's been going on for a while. I've been handed bottles of painkillers after dental work or a foot injury, just like you, I'm sure. And some people can take these, even recreationally, and, you know, they can... They can somehow manage it, but so many people cannot. And I personally, I avoid them. Too many people I know or know of have been ruined by these drugs. You know, we write prescriptions often for long-term use of drugs like oxycodone, and that's done harm. I mean, I had uh, knee microfracture surgery on my knee um, a number of years ago, and I walked out with a several-month prescription for oxycodone. I, I didn't, I didn't take it. Um, I probably could have sold it on the street for thousands of dollars, I mean, but uh, I, I, I think I didn't take a single capsule uh, or, or pill because it scared me. That's the voice of Doctor Paul Offit. I'm Paul Offit. I'm a professor of pediatrics and the director of the Vaccine Education Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. Paul Offit is one of the smartest and most influential doctors in the world. He's been fighting anti-vaxxers for years, while at the same time, as a pediatrician specializing in infectious diseases and virology, he co-invented the rotavirus vaccine. He's published more than 100 papers. He's a member of the CDC. He advises politicians and other influential people. He's also written several books, Autism's False Prophets, Vaccinated, Do You Believe in Magic, Bad Faith, and one that just came out, which we will discuss in this episode called Pandora's Lab. It's all about how the process of science is amazing and wonderful and tremendously beneficial to society, but because that endeavor is conducted by flawed, biased humans who are still influenced by our primate tendencies, some scientific discoveries have also led to great harm. And one of them was the discovery of opioids. Well, I mean, it started with the discovery of opium, you know, which is, you know, hundreds of years 
BC on, uh, you know, Hippocrates was the first to write about it. He treated it for, you know, used it as a treatment for nausea. Um, it was uh, a co of or a fellow Greek named Diagoras of Milos who noticed that, that although this certainly worked to relieve pain, that, they, that many of his fellow Greeks, Greeks had become hopelessly addicted to the drug. And so he warned against its use, a warning that we pretty much have ignored for the last 2,500 years. We've modified, I mean, the major ingredient of opium is morphine. We've modified that drug synthetically to make drugs like um, heroin, um, which is diacetyl morphine, or fentanyl, and um, and and keep in, in, consistently uh, believing that we could separate pain relief from addiction. Consistently believing that if we could just use lesser quantities of the drug because it was much more active in terms of getting crossing the blood-brain barrier, that we would that we would not have to uh, to worry about addiction. But it's just never worked out that way, and it's just a lesson we keep not learning. You have people like Mike Shashevsky, you know, the the head basketball coach at Duke, becoming addicted to to pain relieving medicines. I mean, this is a, a very tough, disciplined man. And it, it tells you that I think anybody, therefore, can become addicted. I guess I should make the distinction because this often is one way I get criticized for the book, is um, the, addition, di the distinction between addiction and dependence. Um, technically, uh, dependence means you are, as Mike Krzyzewski was, dependent on the drug. He couldn't get off the drug. But um, and in fact, took a year off, I think, from from coaching. But you you know, the addiction implies that you are willing to do things that really do hurt yourself. So you you know, you steal or you cheat uh, or you lie or you do whatever you can to maintain this uh, this uh, addiction. Our best guess is that the opium poppy was harvested in Neolithic times, but popularized by the ancient Sumerians. And as Paul writes in his book, it was so powerful that they thought it had to be a gift from the gods, specifically a gift from Isis to Ra to help him with a god-level headache. And this divine narrative appears in many cultures. For instance, in India, opium was believed to have sprung from the ground when the Buddha cut his eyelids off to prevent sleep, and when they hit the ground, they planted like seeds and grew into opium poppies. Now, Offit says, because opium grows well in many types of soil, and it's very hardy and insect-resistant, wherever it can make money, this plant will spread. It's been a problem all throughout human history. The Greeks dealt with it off and on. In the 16 and 1700s, millions of Chinese people became addicted. In fact, Offit says that the British in 1773 exported 165,000 pounds to China. By 1839, they were exporting nearly 6 million pounds a year. In America, it entered our lives by the way of laudanum, an elixir you drank to get stoned out of your mind, which was put into everything from fruit cordials to children's cough syrup. One variety, Palm Engines, was named Mother Bailey's Quieting Syrup. By the late 1800s, it had become clear that opium and laudanum were out of control. But at the same time, heroin was taking off as a safe chemistry lab-created alternative. So while one wave of anti-narcotics laws washed across the land, legal heroin took off, and it became a standard treatment for common maladies like bronchitis and hay fever. Of course, the introduction of heroin almost immediately produced widespread addiction, overdoses, and deaths. 
And all of this led to a lot of firmly entrenched anti-drug laws by the 1920s, all meant to curtail the harm of opium, heroin, morphine, and laudanum, all derivatives of the same plant, the poppy, a plant that can also produce the antecedents of codeine, a cough suppressant, papaverine, a muscle relaxer, and thebaian, which we'll get to in just a second. You see, the heroin epidemic was so bad in the United States by the 1970s that the very idea of a, quote, war on drugs emanates from that time period. There was a panic that it would truly destroy the country. And since the war on drugs attempted to fix this problem by treating most drugs as equally harmful to society and addicts of the truly harmful drugs as if they were criminals instead of sick people who need help, by 1995, more than 600,000 people were addicted to heroin in the United States. But if you look at this on a graph, you'll notice that all of a sudden, in the late 1990s, heroin use plummeted. By 2003, it had gone from 600,000 addicts to 100,000. And according to Dr. Offit, the reason for that drop-off was thebaian, the synthetic version of which is known as oxycodone. The name brand version is known as Oxycontin, which replaced heroin as the poppy derivative of choice sometime in the late 90s. One of the most tragic and weird aspects of this plant's relationship with our culture is that morphine was created to treat opium addiction. But then people got addicted to morphine, so they created heroin, which was supposed to treat morphine addiction. But people got addicted to heroin, so they created oxycodone to treat people with heroin addiction, and now it's 2017 and people are addicted to oxycodone. We've just traded one epidemic for another, and this happens over and over again, not because really this plant is evil or dangerous, but because the scientific endeavor to finally get it right, to finally produce a pain medicine that eases suffering without causing addiction, requires someone to be a champion for each iteration. And that's where the problem comes in. Usually, when Pandora's lab is opened, there is some charismatic person making a persuasive argument, and it's this argument that becomes popular and causes all the damage. In the case of oxycodone, it was a pain specialist producing that argument. His name was Russell Portnoy, and in 1986, he produced a paper that would, well, it led to the crisis we face today. Yeah, so he... he, he um believed at the time that there was sort of a series of events that occurred. I mean, major pain relieving drugs like heroin, which was, you know, um, basically banned for sale in the early 1900s, around 1920s. Um, he believed that we'd become too phobic about opioids like oxycodone and that we needed to not just use it for, as Cicely Saunders had recommended, for patients who were terminal, who were who were dying of cancer or dying of another disease, that we needed to, to uh, to get over what he called our opiophobia and, and start using it for, for all kinds of pain. And that we didn't have to worry about addiction because he published a paper in pain of 38 uh, uh, patients, two of whom, only two of whom had become addicted and they had already had addictive behavior before that, that we didn't need to worry about it. That one paper probably has done more harm than any single paper ever published when you consider that more than 20,000 people are dying of, of drug overdoses you know, a year in the United States. Um, and so he he loosened the reins. He was a smart guy. He was he was a he was he worked at the pain clinic at uh, at uh, New York uh, University, and he wrote the chapters on pain and he gave talks about pain. And I think he convinced 
doctors that it was okay to, to use you know major pain relieving medicines like opioids for all kinds of pain. And that opened a door in the mid-1980s that we're still trying to close. The opioid crisis was set off by something psychological, by a psychological phenomenon. And as I've said many times on this show, physics may subsume psychology, but psychology subsumes physicists. In other words, the hard sciences like physics and chemistry that aim to understand the forces that rule our world are themselves ruled by the forces that psychology attempts to understand. In the case of Portnoy, that force was celebrity. The overdose of status made possible by modern media. Russell Portnoy became a much sought-after interview guest on radio, television, and in magazines, and he became a spokesperson for painkillers, for oxycodone, a Johnny Appleseed for opiates, a proselytizer for painkillers. He became a zealot. The public was unaware that all the while this was happening, he was being obliterated by other scientists. His papers were immediately torn apart in peer review. His ideas were crushed by his academic peers, and his suggestions immediately came into question. But in the public sphere, he had become famous. And we are often weak in the presence of fame. We are weak in the presence of the famous. Such a person can cause a lot of harm because of us, because of our psychology, because of our reaction to someone charismatic, confident, and authoritative who promises they have the answers to our problems. To paraphrase Dr. Offit, the facts don't speak for themselves. Someone always speaks for them. And the result in this case, said Offit, is that it created a new public sentiment, and the culture of medicine shifted in the 1990s to include the reduction of pain as a major component of care. I think that what, what's happened is we've learned to make um, drugs that cross the blood-brain barrier very quickly that are enormously addictive. And although they also are excellent agents as euphoric agents, as uh, pain-relieving agents, they are enormously addictive. We've created that. And I think that there's a lot, there's many parts of that. I think one part certainly is doctors. In medicine, we have made uh, the avoidance of pain paramount. I mean, pain became the fifth vital sign. And, you know, that, that no one could walk into a doctor's office with being asked the question, are you in any pain today? And could you please, you know, give me a semantic differential if you're an adult or if you're a child, you know, from the smiley face to the frown face, you know, where are you in that, in that uh, scheme? And, and so no one could could uh, could walk out of an office without making sure that they weren't suffering an ounce of pain. And with this, you know, we gave a lot of gave more and more painkillers until we've obviously reached a crisis. I, I think, you know, now we I think doctors realize that we need to step back from pain as the fifth vital sign. There are major organizations of doctors that are trying to eliminate pain as the fifth vital sign. But it's a little right now, it's a little too little too late. We've addicted a nation. My name is David McCraney, and this is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. And in this episode, we are exploring 
what Paul Offit calls Pandora's Lab, those moments when scientific innovation doesn't immediately lead to progress, but instead, for a time period, leads to harm. Why does it lead to harm? Because of cognitive biases and logical fallacies and all of the other things we talk about on this show. As Eli Yakowski said, science is smarter than scientists, and sometimes scientists make big mistakes. But that's the whole point of his book and this episode. We're going to talk about what we can do to prevent these mistakes in the future and to mitigate their harm when they happen. All that after this break. For less than $10 a meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients right to your door. Blue Apron is completely flexible, so you can customize your recipes each week and choose a delivery option that fits your needs. I have them sent here on the weekends so that I can enjoy myself, make a meal, watch Game of Thrones with the food that we make. It's super cool to just go right to the refrigerator, bring out the stuff, look at the sheet. And I I actually keep all the sheets that they send. They send these laminated, really nice sort of brochure things that show you how to make the food step by step. I like them. I don't know why. I'm saving them. I think they're really neat. And Blue Apron has this thing called the freshness guarantee. It promises that every ingredient will arrive ready to cook or they'll make it right. And it has been true every time for us. We really like this service. Some of the meals available in August include basil pesto chicken with summer vegetable panzanella, sauteed shrimp and green beans with globe tomatoes, spinach, and orzo pasta, whole grain pasta and summer vegetables with heirloom tomato caprese salad, miso butter salmon with lo mein noodles and cucumber and charm tomatoes. Is this insane? I mean, listen to these. Meatball pizza with fresh mozzarella cheese and charm tomatoes. If I mispronounced anything, I'm sorry. I grew up in the South. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. Three meals free and free shipping, blueapron.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. It is wonderful to have an advertiser you truly, truly believe in, and that is The Great Courses Plus. It was created for people like us, for you, for me, for the people who love learning something new every single day, who want to get smarter if they can. It's a wonderful, satisfying way to spend your time. I know it's the same for so many of you. I spend hours at a time watching these 
video lectures, I find that I have a cue that I may, I may never get through this thing. I love having access to learn from these bright, engaging experts. I've used some of the courses to research projects for the show, for uh, the book I'm working on. You can watch the stuff from your living room while traveling. You can stream lectures to any device or download the videos to watch offline. I've been watching right now. I'm watching the Intellectual Implications of Modern Science. It's called Redefining Reality. It's a look at free will and technology, and it explores whether our actions are really the result of deliberate personal choices. And it talks about computers and big data and how they can predict what people will do in many situations. Pretty crazy stuff. Pretty insane. I want you to watch it. I'm probably going to get the people who put this together on the show. I like it that much. It's called Redefining Reality, The Intellectual Implications of Modern Science. It's crazy. Now, I want you to check out The Great Courses Plus. All you have to do, sign up now. And as one of the listeners to this show, you will get this course that I just mentioned and any of their other courses free for one month. And look, you can watch a lot of stuff in a month. You can make out like a bandit, but you need to go to this URL. It's a special URL. It is thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. Start your free month today. You will love it. There's no way you won't love this. TheGreatCoursesPlus.com slash smart. And now we return to our program. My name is David McCraney, and this is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. In the 1930s and 1940s, Walter Freeman was very popular and very famous among neurologists and other people who dealt with the mentally ill because he developed a technique for lobotomizing people by jabbing a spike behind their eyeballs. Some reports say he performed this technique around 2,500 times, often without anesthesia. He took this practice that had previously required drilling into the skull and he turned it into an outpatient procedure. That is, if these people were allowed to leave the mental institutions, they often were not. At first, he used an ice pick, but eventually he developed short, thin metal spears that he drove through the back of the eye socket with a mallet. The technique made formerly unruly mental patients calmer, as you might imagine severe brain damage would. It became a popular way to treat patients in mental facilities, and Freeman drove a van he called the Lobotomobile around the country to teach the technique wherever he could. Somewhere close to 20,000 people were lobotomized in this way before science corrected itself. Freeman was criticized by many people in his heyday, and he eventually was shunned by science, but for two decades, his work continued. Even the sister of President John F. Kennedy was lobotomized. Today, the ice pick lobotomy is condemned by medicine as a barbaric and naive approach to dealing with mental illness. So how did it become popular in the first place? So um, in the mid-1930s, there was a Portuguese neurologist who um, 
invented the procedure. His name was Egas Moniz, and he saw this procedure performed on chimpanzees. Right, and so then that was exactly right. So they, they taught the, uh, the animals how to get food with a stick. One of the animals would get very anxious when she couldn't successfully do that. When they did this lobotomy, which then was called, at least by Moniz, a leucotomy, that, that, you know, that the animal was, was much less anxious. As, as I, it was stated by one of the researchers at the time, it was as if she enjoy, had joined a happiness cult. Here's how this procedure worked. You anesthetize the patient. At first, it was an animal. It was a chimpanzee. And then you drill a hole into the temple. Then when the brain is exposed, you take a syringe and you inject alcohol right into the frontal lobe of the brain. So Moniz saw this performed on chimpanzees, and he wanted to try it out on people. So when he got back home, he got some cadavers. He started experimenting when he felt like he had perfected the technique he brought in a 63-year-old mental patient. They opened up her head. They took a syringe filled with alcohol. They injected her frontal lobes, closed her up. And sure enough, when she woke up, she was much calmer. She had suffered from extreme anxiety and paranoia before the operation. And afterwards, she didn't. Now, they attempted to repeat this on six others, and it wasn't quite as successful. So they abandoned the injection technique and switched to something they felt was much more precise, taking a little metal loop, sticking it in the hole, and scooping out a bit of the brain. He believed that if you could sort of separate the frontal lobes from the area behind that, that that could serve as a way to um, to decrease anxiety, to affect manic depressive disorder, and more importantly, to affect schizophrenia. He believed this to be true. So here was great. It was psychosurgery was born. It crossed the Atlantic. Its name was changed from leucotomy to lobotomy, and then it was popularized by Walter Freeman and his ice pick technique and his lobotomobile. So I remember it's like at the time there were, um, you know, there were many institutes for the mentally uh, uh, disabled, um, especially schizophrenia, and there was nothing really to treat it. I mean, we were, remember we were coming off of things like, you know, whips and chains and and snake pits and phrenology machines. I mean, there really wasn't much psychiatrists had to offer until the 1950s, really, when drugs like Thorazine, um, which many ways was like a medical lobotomy in a sense, and it was you know very suppressive drug, but but up until then you didn't have anything. And what I think he offered, he Walter Freeman, who ended up doing about seven thousand of the twenty thousand lobotomies we did in the United States, this was a magical, quick thing. I mean, we like to believe that you can you know with surgery evoke a, a, a magical cure. He was able to convince a lot of people of this. And, um, and it, you know, he, I think he in many ways mis misrepresented data at the beginning when he first started to do these because there were cerebral hemorrhages that resulted in deaths. There were, you know, motor and sensory deficits. There were residual seizure disorders. There were a lot of problems with, with lobotomies. But, but in some ways it was, it acted like Thorazine or Tofranil or Milton, where, it, you know, it really was a very much a, an, a, a mood suppressive drug for people who had Manic depressive illness, who had anxiety disorders. It really, in that sense, worked, although you paid an enormous price for it. Just like with Portnoy, someone was speaking for the facts. In this case, it was Freeman and Moniz. Moniz actually won the Nobel Prize for developing the lobotomy. And these were charismatic, confident people facing a world that had a real problem. And they were saying, we have the solution to that problem. The problem in this case was that mental institutions were maybe the worst thing that had ever happened. They were like a Hieronymus Bosch painting come to life. They were hell, hell on earth. 
and anyone who could somehow free both the doctors and the patients from that hell was worth listening to. Things were that bad. There were, you know, there were more people that were hospitalized with mental illness, especially schizophrenia, than all other diseases combined in the United States. The the conditions in which they were hospitalized was de- were deplorable. I mean, the ratio of doctors to patients was was uh, awful, and and uh, these places were, you know, were just the insane asylums, as they were called. You know, were just pits and. Here, here was this guy who came in because he was a zealot, Walter Freeman, and he said, I can make this all go away. And, and in, in a sense, lobotomies were made patients much easier to handle because it was so, uh, so suppressive. Uh, you know, you, you're, you really did become more vegetative, which made you much easier to handle. And, 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 and I think that's what, what was born of that. I think nothing killed lobotomy more than the invention of Thorazine. Mm-hmm. So, which in a sense served a similar purpose. And he won the, not Freeman, but Moniz won the Nobel Prize? Yes, won the Nobel Prize in, in the 1930s for his work. And so, and, and that's an example, you know, it, it's, uh, and there are other examples. I mean, Johannes Thibinger won the Nobel Prize for his um, discovery that, you know, that worms can cause cancer, which, you know, wasn't true either. I, you know, so, and again, people look at that and they say, see, that's why you can't trust science. Science is wrong all the time. But that's not correct. The better interpretation is, that's why you can't blindly trust scientists. You should, you should never blindly trust science. You could argue Andrew Wakefield was a scientist. I mean, you know, Moniz was a scientist, and so was, and so was Walter Freeman. They, they were just wrong, and, and, and time showed that they were wrong. Ultimately, science did win out because it showed that they were wrong. Andrew Wakefield, by the way, is the former gastroenterologist who produced the research suggesting vaccines cause autism. He was wrong, of course. He was almost immediately challenged, actually, and his work was torn to shreds in peer review. But like Portnoy and Freeman, he supported a certain way of looking at the world, and he had the confidence to ride that wave of support to celebrity. And then, of course, celebrity scrambled everyone in the audience's brains. The issue over and over again in Dr. Offit's book is that people in every era are simply not comfortable with uncertainty, and that manifests in two ways— One, by people who look at the past, like with lobotomies, and say, ah, see, what do doctors really know? Or what do scientists know, really? And then there's this other thing among people who are desperate for answers, and you have to have empathy for that. They have a susceptibility to cherry-pick the data. The truth is that in many domains, we've only just begun exploring, and so the answers are provisional which is deeply unsettling to many people from all walks of life. That I think we, um, we don't like uncertainty. The fact of the matter is, is that 100 years from now, we're going to understand medicine much better than what we know now. Obviously, we're going to look back on some of the things that we're sure about now and find out that we were dead wrong because we learn over time. And I think that is uncomfortable to people. I think they, they want surety. They're, they're drawn to surety. So when you take somebody like, like Andrew Wakefield, I mean, Andrew Wakefield is sure that he's right, even though he's not, even though the data has shown that he's not. And I think in part that's his appeal, as is, you, know, you could make the same case for Ahmed Oz or Deepak Chopra. 
It's the the what I call the Doctor Bones phenomenon. I, wasn't that the name of the guy in Star Trek who you know sort of had that tricorder that he would sort of you know he would look up and down and and he would he would he would scan you up and down and he would look on that tricorder and that was your diagnosis. That was it. There was no question about it. And and that's that's very reassuring. And I think it's it's. It's uh, it's never true. Science is mutable, changeable. I mean, we're, we're we're constantly gaining new information. We're throwing a textbooks over our shoulder without a backward glance. As we gain more information, that's disconcerting to people, and I can understand why that's disconcerting to people. So it's okay to be skeptical of science, because I think you should be skeptical of science. What you shouldn't be is cynical. happens a lot. I mean, not only in your book, but also, you know, if you review uh, the history of um, the vaccination as well, this a one paper can come out and do a lot of harm, even after 20 years of, uh, you know, it being obliterated in peer review, the, the, once it's out there, that it's this goes. This is you're the entire thesis, you know. I guess of your book. This once it's open, once it's out in the world, there the forces that go into play are beyond those that rein in bad science out there among the public. Um, and you say that the the big takeaway from this the lesson about opium is that it's all about the data. So if you could uh, sort of help us understand what you mean by that, and um, maybe help us understand what we could do about it. Right. Well, scientists will tell you reasonably that it's always just about the data. So, for example, if you, you the paper you alluded to before, the paper that was published by Andrew Wakefield and colleagues in 1998, claiming that the combination measles, mumps, rubella vaccine caused autism, um, that was wrong. First of all, it was only a case series. It was a series really of 12 children, eight of whom had autism within a month of receiving the MMR vaccine. That's all that paper was. It should have never been published on its face. It was just simply a case series. Um, there was no control group. Therefore, there was no way that he could have ever made a claim that MMR caused autism. But he did. And and so it opened Pandora's box. And And subsequent to that, I mean, 17 studies have shown that children who receive MMR uh, vaccine are not at greater risk of autism than children who don't. So there it is. That's the data. That's the science. And you would like to think in a better world that the data speak for themselves, but they don't. The fact of the matter is scientists speak for the data. And he, Wakefield, is a very charismatic, well-spoken scientist with a square jaw, a firm resolve, and a British accent, something we're willing to you know, give ourselves up back to the queen, I think, at this point. And so there are still many people in the United States, despite all those data, that choose not to vaccinate because the, 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 you have a charismatic celebrity scientist on the other side who makes that claim. So, so you know, you may have on the one hand a a a a a a, a, a very well spoken celebrity scientist who has terrible data, and on the other side have an, a, an awkward scientist in, in the media who has excellent data, and and you know the the celebrity scientist wins out. We're always at risk of the celebrity scientist. What can we do to help prevent something like what happened with? Um, Portnoy and Wakefield uh, happening again. Uh, what can we, what is, if we kind of understand how this happened, what can we do to prevent this from happening in the future? Um, I think that, that, I mean, those are two perfect examples, right? I mean, it became clear actually soon after Portnoy published that paper in 1986, claiming that, you know, we didn't really need to worry about addiction. Uh, Jane Ballantyne published a paper in the, I think by the early 90s, saying that that was wrong. 
that, that and, and she published it in New England Journal of Medicine, it's an excellent publication, only much better than pain. And, and you know, she showed very clearly that these were highly addictive drugs and that you needed to be careful about it. Yet, nonetheless, over the next 25 years, you know, we we used them indiscriminately to the point that we're having, you know, a question about whether Donald Trump now is is being asked to to, uh, to declare this is a national state of emergency. Uh, it's that bad. Uh, you know, it's more than 100 people a day that are dying from from these 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 drugs, and and it's gotten to that point now before we're finally, you know, the CDC and the Surgeon General are striking back and talking about how doctors need to limit the, the number of prescriptions they write, the the number days that for which they write prescriptions. So that's what it came to. Similarly, for, for, for you know, measles-containing vaccine like MMR, we had to have a massive outbreak in Southern California that spread to 25 states, you know, that ultimately convinced those people in Southern California who were hesitant about getting vaccines to get vaccines. Why? Because now they were scared of the disease. I mean, I have certainly recently, ever since I started writing books, I've really tried to, as a scientist, stand up uh, in, in front of the media and the public and explain science, explain what we do, why we do it, how we do it, why it's important to learn from what we do. And, and certainly I, along with many other people, I think have stood up on this, this, you know, say MMR vaccine causes autism or vaccines cause autism in general. And I think that has had an effect. I do. I mean, Andrew Wakefield, for all his celebrity, hasn't really had his a major star turn since Anderson Cooper tore him to shreds in 2011. I mean, he's been clearly, you know, he's now doing like conspiracy tours, you know. So, so I think, if, and and I think when the outbreak occurred in Southern California, because of all the education that had been done, we were really ready to hear it, and I think the media was ready to hear it. So I do think there is something to be said for standing up. I think scientists um, do need to sort of get out of the lab and do what they can to explain to the public why. They do what they do. I mean, I, I was funded for uh, by the National Institutes of Health for 25 years, which is to say the public funded my uh, work. I mean, the taxpayer funded my work. Therefore, I owe it, I think, to the taxpayer to explain why I do what I do. And I think we all do, especially if we're receiving public funds. At the end of Dr. Offit's book, he outlines a series of lessons we can learn from the history of Pandora's lab, those moments when scientific innovation has led to harm. I asked him to briefly take us through each one of those lessons. It's all about the data. It's all about peer review and reproducibility and a lot of the things that have happened in the uh, history of, of science and its strange application in society, the negative effects came from not paying attention to the data. So if you could just sort of unpack that for us. Right. It's, it's um, I think truths do emerge over time. I think if you have a question, it's a reasonable question, for example, did the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine cause autism? You could argue in the best case scenario that Andrew Wakefield raised that question. It's a testable question. You, it's, he didn't ask how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, which is not a, a question that's going to be answered in a scientific venue. But this you can answer. You can look at large numbers of children who either did or didn't receive that vaccine and have many different investigators do it in different parts of this world. And and when that happens, a truth emerges. And so it is all about the data. The, the, the sad thing, and we alluded to this earlier, is that, um, you know, it's it's people, the data don't speak for themselves. People speak for the data. And, and I'll give you a personal example. Um, 
Tom Harkin was um, a popular Democratic senator from Iowa who was interested in adding a caveat to a bill to put $2 million aside and study whether or not vaccines cause brain damage. I don't know what you were going to get for that $2 million, but that's what he wanted to do, which would have just, again, scared people on something that really has, frankly, already been shown not to be a problem. But in any case, I went to see Tom Harkin, me and and, uh, a woman named Amy Pisani, who is the executive director of a group called Every Child by Two, and Betty Bumpers, who's the wife of Dale Bumpers, who's a former governor, and Rosalind Carter, who's a uh, you know former first lady. And we went and talked to Tom Harkin, and he was a very nice guy, and he listened to everything that we had to say. And when we walked out, I was the last person to walk out. And he shook my hand, but wouldn't let it go. And he said, you know, a week ago, I had people in here who told me the exact opposite of what you just told me. Why should I believe you? And I said, you shouldn't believe me any more than you should believe them. It's all about really what those studies show. And the studies I'm talking about, and I can certainly send them to you, are rigorous, large, well-performed studies that are done by, you know, by academic investigators who know what they're doing. Those are good studies. But the fact of the matter is he wasn't going to read those studies. And you could argue even that he didn't have the expertise to read them. So it came down to whether he trusted me. Mm. It did. And he looked at me and he said again, can you tell me with certainty that these vaccines aren't causing autism, for example. And I said, yes, I can tell you that. And so he looked me in the eye and believed that he could trust me. And in the end, he didn't propose that $2 million to study whether or not vaccines cause brain damage. So essentially we got what we wanted. But what was so disconcerting about all that was I thought we got what we wanted for the wrong reasons. We got it because at some level he needed to trust me. And that's unfortunate because what should have, he should have trusted were the data. And, and that wasn't what happened. Okay, so you say everything has a price, and the question is how big. Um, And we should be careful about grandfathering in things just because they've worked in the past. So help us understand that idea. Well, I think anything that that has a positive effect is, by definition, going to have a negative effect. The only question is how negative. Uh, You know, if you get... If you get a measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, you know, the measles vaccine virus can does reproduce it itself in you. In some patients, they can get a mild rash. They can get fever. Um, and so you, you have to suffer that as a as a way of, of uh, getting immunity to a virus that, frankly, you know, when you are exposed to the natural virus, the wild type virus can kill you. So there's there's a little bit of a downside, but a tremendous upside. So that's what is meant by um by, you know, the fact that there's a price. But, you know, it's, it's and there's bigger prices. And take, take something like the yellow fever vaccine. The yellow fever vaccine um, prevents a disease that, you know, causes about 200,000 cases a year with a very high mortality rate. Um, if you go to places like in South uh, America or Africa where yellow fever is endemic, you know, you can die from yellow fever. Now, the, you can also die from the yellow fever vaccine. The yellow fever vaccine causes something called dyserotropic disease. It occurs in sort of 0.09 per 100,000 people. So it's like, you know, point, uh, essentially point, uh, or one person per uh, whatever, 10 million people, roughly one person per 10 million people. So you're obviously, if you go to a, a yellow fever endemic region, your odds of getting yellow fever are much, and dying from yellow fever, are much higher than, than dying from yellow fever from the yellow fever vaccine. But both those things are true. And so you are asked to play the odds. You are. And I think people aren't very good at that. They, they don't assess risk well. And if you don't believe that, just look at the way the New York State uh, lottery system uh, explains itself. It says, you know, it can happen to you. Right? Even though the chance is about one in 14 million of your winning lottery can happen to you. And if you don't believe it, they show you a series of people who won. So there you go. It could happen. 
And I think that's the way people see the yellow fever vaccine. Some people choose not to get a yellow fever vaccine because correctly, they're right in saying that it can cause you to die. And so they choose not to get it. Um, but it's um, so that's what I mean, that, that everything comes with a price. It's just a matter of understanding what that price is. I mean, I think general anesthesia can probably comes with a price and does come with a price of, of long term uh, memory loss. But but it's it's uncommon. And we're sort of just learning about it. But, you know, the, the, the ability, as, as I think it was Gore Vidal, when asked the question, you know, wouldn't you like to live in the time of Burr or live in the time of Lincoln? Because he'd written, you know, about those times. Clearly, he loved those times. And he said, I'd never want to live in an age that hadn't perfected anesthesia. I think that's exactly right. So we do pay a price for that. Um, it's, it's unclear just how big that price is. But that's what we need to understand. Nothing is free. Beware the zeitgeist. Uh, This is a a very interesting point that you make. And you talk about e-cigarettes and GMOs and BPA. Um, So help us understand what you mean by that. What do we mean, beware the times that we live in? Right. I think there's certainly a a politics to to science denialism. I mean, it's very easy to... to, to pin this on the conservatives with issues like, um, you know, evolution denial, which is certainly true of our vice president, Mike Pence, as well as our education secretary, Betsy DeVos, or climate change denial, which is true of our president and EPA head and energy head. Um, so that's certainly um, true. Um, but, but the, the you know, the, the liberals, if you will, have their own sort of sense of science denialism. And, and it's, it's the zeitgeist. I mean, it's sort of the culture. And if you don't believe that, just walk into a Whole Foods store. I mean, and there you can get your BPA-free, gluten-free, GMO-free products, um, you know, all of which don't make a lot of sense, for, except for gluten-free. Gluten-free does make sense if you have celiac disease, but that, that's about 1% of the U.S. population, even though 20% of people believe that they are. So... It's, um, you know, that's what you're up against. So, and it, 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 these become belief systems in, in something that is an evidence-based system. I mean, science is an evidence-based system. Religion is a belief system. You know, those two things are separate. You have to believe in the existence of the supreme being. You don't have to believe that the MMR vaccine causes, doesn't cause autism. That's a fact. So, and this is, uh, we talked about this a bit earlier, beware the quick fix. And, uh, and I'm astonished at how often this is something that is, comes up as a, um, I'm, I'm, I'm astonished at how much we have to avoid this and how easy it is for this to uh, mess with generations of people's lives. So uh, help us unpack what you mean by that in the context of your book. Right. If, if something seems a little too good to be true, it probably is too good to be true. I think probably the weight loss products that you see sold are, you know, can contain, you know, did contain not so much, say, the drugs like ephedra. I mean, you know, these sort of stimulants that can cause severe, you know, psychosis and death. I think we finally got ephedra off the market, but it took a long time to do that. And um, then that's just the weight loss products. And then you have the potency products, which you don't know, but they actually contain, you know, things like Viagra or, or subutramine, you know, which is now off the market. But um, it's, it's, it's in the case here, the, the sort of quick fix that obviously refers to lobotomies. You know, I think somebody like Joseph Kennedy was a smart guy. Um, he cared about his children. He didn't want his daughter, Rosemary, to suffer from what was, frankly, in retrospect, just a mild developmental delay. I mean, she could write. She could travel. She could dance. I mean, she wasn't her brothers and sisters who were obviously much farther along than she was. But, you know, she was functional. And yet it was she wasn't a Kennedy. That wasn't good enough. And he was afraid it might hurt his other children's political careers. And he wanted her fixed. 
And even though there was a Boston neurologist who said, don't do lobotomies, this is not what you want to do in this girl, he was persuaded by Walter Freeman that, 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 that all this stuff that she was doing, this sort of, you know, sometimes she would flap her arms and hands, sometimes she would get... Uh, you know, very emotional, and that this could all go away with one simple surgical procedure. And, you know, it really rendered her largely vegetative for the rest of her life. It was a tragedy. The dose, the dose makes the poison. This, was a, this is something that I think um, is not intuitive for most people. So uh, help us understand. I ha- actually, I have a great book here about uh, pharmacopoeia, which uh, you probably have read. It's, uh, it um, anthropomorphizes, like, things like nicotine and stuff, and it talks about how it treats almost, it treats everything as a poison, just at different dosages. So I really, it stuck, it, um, that pinged my brain when you, when you wrote that. So uh, it, from your perspective, what do you mean by the dose makes the poison? Well, I mean, so, so for example, um, there are hazing events, fraternity hazing events, where they make you drink gallons and gallons of water immediately. And when you do that, you can lower your your ability to to hold on to sodium. You can you can therefore decrease the amount of sodium in your bloodstream acutely, which can cause you to have a seizure. That doesn't mean that that water causes seizures. It just means that if you drink several gallons at once, you're putting yourself at some risk. So it doesn't mean water is an is a neurotoxic drug. Um, you can make the same case for mercury. Mercury at high levels also is neurotoxic, but mercury is in the environment. I mean, mercury is in the first crust as, as inorganic mercury. It is then methylated uh, by bacteria at the surface of the soil or the surface of the seas. And, and we ingest methylmercury all the time, assuming we live on this planet and, and drink anything made from water on this planet, including infant formula or breast milk. But mercury is never going to sound good. And so although mercury and, you know, as a form of ethylmercury as you, was used as a preservative in vaccines, a number of vaccines, you were still far more likely to be exposed to the mercury if you were drinking breast milk or infant formula, which is pretty much every child on this planet. Um, but nonetheless, the minute you said the word mercury, the minute that you said that you were giving children mercury in vaccines, that was never going to sound good. And so people it really, the, the fight that we had trying to explain this, and it was a losing fight, was that, you know, the dose makes the poison, that they weren't getting quantities that would be harmful. But it's not like, you know, there was a National Association for the Appreciation of Heavy Metals standing up on the other side. This never sounds good. I, mean, I testified in front of congressional hearings where, you know, congressmen would say, I have zero tolerance for mercury. We have zero tolerance for mercury. Better move to another planet, because on this point, it was mercury. Uh, what, what do you mean by be cautious about being cautious? Right. Then this sort of is, is loose to what we've talked about before to some extent. I mean, it's in, in the uh, in the name of being cautious, for example, we were we, we eliminated DDT from the United States and because we, we feared that it could, you know, it could lead to uh, certain human diseases. And, and even though there were really scant data that that was true, we just exercised cautious. We, you know, the precautionary principle. So we eliminated DDT and ultimately DDT was largely eliminated by the World Health Organization for world use and tens of millions of children died needlessly from malaria. So, you know, th- this was a cheap easy insecticide to use, much easier than a lot of the other sort of biological insecticides that were used. And, and we sort of pulled the ladder up behind us after we'd eliminated malaria from this country by using DDT. You know, the, 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 and the, the heart of that was something called the Malaria con- uh, Control in War Areas, the MCWA, which was based in Atlanta, Georgia, that became the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. So, you know, this is the, maybe with the CDC really, really born of eliminating malaria from this country. And we just didn't, uh, in the name of caution, 
we did harm. I think if you're going to exercise the precautionary principle, which is what we were arguing at that time, you better make sure that there's not harm because then that's not the precautionary principle. The knee-jerk reaction is, is always the, is what you're avoiding so often in this, and it's hard to juggle the idea that caution would be bad. As long as it doesn't have it, I mean, so for example, you can argue take a plasticizer out of a toy. Um, that's not going to cause harm, and, and it probably doesn't. Uh, and since you can take bisphenol A out of water bottles, I think that's not going to harm cause harm. But, you know, it's when you take DDT out of the United States and then ultimately out of the world, did a lot of harm. So I think I'm just, that's what I'm saying. Just be, be cautious about being cautious. Mm. Make sure that there's not another side. And your last piece of advice in the book is uh, pay attention to the man behind the curtain. Right. That, that comes from the Wizard of Oz. That would be the little man behind the curtain. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so again, there, there it's, I guess it's, the, it's, the, it's the, uh, the Wizard of Oz phenomenon. You could apply it to Metas, ironically, um, or Andrew Wakefield, or anybody who stands up uh, for, for a particular point of view, that it should never be about the person, about the, the, um, the ability of that person to be charismatic and persuasive. It's always about the data. You should always look behind the little man behind the curtain and make sure that there's data there. After writing this book, what, what insight did you gain from all of this? What is your big takeaway from exploring the unintended consequences? I think that you, um, uh, you say something in the beginning. I think I wrote this down. Um, uh, yes, scientific innovation does not always mean progress. If you could just unpack that as a way of sort of signing us out. Yeah, I think it's that, um, that science has given us much. I mean, it's brought us, brought us out of the age of darkness into the age of enlightenment. We live 30 years longer now than we did 100 years ago because of science, all true. And I think scientific advances like vaccines or antibiotics or refrigeration or recombinant DNA technology, um, GMOs, et cetera, have, have enabled us to live longer, better, healthier lives, all true. But um, there, science isn't or, or science, the scientific endeavor, because it is done by people, is imperfect. And so there's going to be fits and starts, and there's going to be mistakes. And I think we just need to be open-minded to the fact that that's going to happen, and it doesn't negate the endeavor. It just should make us um, atten- attentive to the endeavor, and, and a little skeptical of the endeavor, but not, not cynical of the endeavor. Dr. Paul Offit's book is called Pandora's Lab, Seven Stories of Science Gone Wrong. Some of the other stories in there are margarine and eugenics and multivitamins. It's a really cool book. Check it out. And Paul Offit, you can find out more about him at paul-offit.com. He also has a Facebook page that he's active on, and he writes an op-ed every weekend for The Daily Beast. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. You can find more great podcasts just like this one at boingboingpodcasts.com. You can find the past episodes of this show at SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, Boing Boing, and youarenotsosmart.com, where you can find show notes for every single episode, including this one. 
The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. The interstitial music was by Twin Musicom and Mogwai. Find us on Twitter at NotSmartBlog. Find me on Twitter at David McGraney. Find us on Facebook. It's just slash You Are Not So Smart. On Patreon, it's You Are Not So Smart. And on YouTube, it's You Are Not So Smart. And everywhere else that people post things, it's You Are Not So Smart. Mm-hmm.